Hello, everyone. Welcome to the 805 Uncensored Podcast, a show about leftist politics, history, spirituality, and more. Uh, tonight on the show, I've got three special guests. I've got Chris from the Alt Left Podcast. How you doing, man? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Anytime. Thanks so much for coming on. We've got Pat from the Trickle Down Socialism Podcast. How's it going, Pat? Hey, Jordan. I'm pumped to be back. Always happy to have you. And we got C Money Burns, also a contributor from the Trickle Down Socialism Podcast and the producer of the show. How's it going, buddy? Yo, yo. How you doing, man? Good, good. All right. Well, thank you guys so much for being here. I'm really looking forward to this episode. Tonight, we're going to be discussing fascism, Nazi Germany, the connection to the United States, um, and education in both of the countries. Former, so real, uh, real uplifting stuff, right? Yeah, so. yeah. Super <laughs> yeah. positive stuff. It's going to be fun. Laugh a minute. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So first of all, I think we should start by saying how we're defining fascism because there's a lot of different definitions. So I'm going to be using Umberto Eco's 14 Points of Fascism, which is based on his 1995 essay. He was an Italian philosopher, novelist, and a social commentator that lived under Mussolini's totalitarian regime. And Mussolini, of course, was the inventor of fascism. And interestingly enough, for the listeners, I'm sure that you guys know this, but the listeners might not know this. Mussolini started as a socialist before he was a fascist. And then, you know, that was about the worst downgrade imaginable. Yeah, no <laughs> like, shit, can't right? do any worse, right? <laughs> okay, so the first point is the cult of tradition. And you guys, if you have any thoughts after I say something, uh, just raise your hand. I'll call on you. And yeah. So the cult of tradition. This is the belief that the truth is already known once and once for all. Fascism requires a belief that learning does not need to evolve or advance. <clears throat> Number two is the rejection of modernism. For fascists, the Enlightenment, also known as the Age of Reason, is seen as the beginning of modern depravity. Fascism in this context can be characterized as strongly defending anti-rationalism and anti-intellectualism, which of course are themes you see deeply employed often by the right wing. <clears throat> well, and you see that a lot um, recently um, as well. You know, it used to be um, the United here in the United States, we used to celebrate. Um, education and intelligence and our leaders. And now on both sides, the right and the left, you know, we had Obama who was, you know, a fucking Harvard law professor and he gets criticized for being an elitist. And then even when the left goes up there, we have people, I mean, Joe Biden has to sit there and be like, no, no, I'm just uncle Joe from Pennsylvania who likes Catholicism and I'm just a regular guy. And it always has to be this, we have this obsession with relatability mm-hmm. rather than actual um, what's sort of competency in our leadership. Mm-hmm. Oh, did we lose? See, we might have. Um, we did. The other piece of this, I think, is like the reverence for the classics and the reverence for you know um, the Roman and Greek societies. And I've heard some leftists joke that like this is why we shouldn't even have a classics education. Like this, no one should get that unless they're like really interested in history because people like this take it and run exactly the wrong way with it. Um, but yeah, I think Chris made a fantastic point. Is this like? idea that you know if you're too smart you can't be trusted or that you know scientists don't know anything and it's all this global conspiracy and it, it, it's just mind-boggling at a point you know you you kind of just have to throw your hands up sometimes and say like really like this is the the level we're operating on is that it yeah instead of appeal to authority it's appear <laughs> it's appeal to idiocy 
Mm-hmm. It's like a, it's like a bizarro logical fallacy. Well, like George W. Bush is the best example of that, right? Like he was an absolute moron and and did some really evil things, but he mm-hmm. got away with it with that little snicker of his and and just his folksy lines, and people loved it. They just ate it with a spoon. But to be fair, even the right wing didn't see him as a leader. I mean, not only do we know that clearly Dick Cheney was president. Right. But beyond the fact that Dick Cheney and Condoleezza Rice were running the nation, even the right kind of knew that. Like, yeah. Except for like, yes, don't get me wrong. There were some fucking country bumpkins who were like, nope, George W. Bush loves Jesus and everything's going to be great. But uh, uh, most of the right was like, yeah, he's whatever. But, you know, Cheney's there and all this. and It's going to be fine. So they, even even his own side uh, was comforted by the fact that he had handlers. Right. And then you look at Bill Clinton, who is actually quite smart, um, but he spoke very slowly and knew knew really well never to use words that made people feel feel less than, you know, like John Kerry's big problem was that he just spoke over everyone's head. Right. And so people felt threatened by him. And so, you know, yeah, that's a great pattern. You pointed it out, Chris. Yeah, really well said, guys. Uh, Number three is the cult of action for action's sake. So it says, quote, action being beautiful in itself, it must, be betake, it must be taken before or without any previous rejection. Thinking is a form of emasculation, end quote. So acting on immediate response, so as long as it doesn't challenge the authority of the state apparatus, is not only um, tolerated, it's actively encouraged. Yeah, look what we have right now with the supply shortage in this country. Um, mm-hmm. You know, that's a real thing. There absolutely is. Now, we could do an entire podcast on why it has absolutely nothing to do with workers' problems, why it has everything to do with an intentional shortage caused by by corporate cronyism for profit. But beyond that, the call is, what's Joe Biden done? What's the White House done? What's the Senate done? It's like this problem has existed for months, and this is a deeply troubling issue of economics and you want to have a knee-jerk reaction for the sake of having one. And that's really what I think your point is is perfect, is that's that's where I think we see that in the modern days. Anytime there's an issue, labor shortage, gas issues, supply chain issues, or anything about war. Oh, my God, did you guys hear China sneezed? We need to go to war. Like, there has to be this immediate knee-jerk reaction all the time, or else that leader for thinking and taking a moment to actually weigh options is considered weak. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think it goes back to the core ideology of the right wing, which is is just fear. Like there always has to be something to be afraid of because if there is something to always be afraid of, it makes people a lot easier to be oppressed. Right. And when we think of the, the right wing as reactionary, this is it, right? This is the characteristic that, that kind of they're looking for. And, you know, you see fascism or a, a tendency towards authoritarian rule, right, you know, spark up in countries when the, either they were like an imperialist power and they've they've lost some of their you know their empire or it's just a, a nation that's been in turmoil for a while and so people are looking people who are afraid jordan to your point absolutely fear-based are looking for someone who can act fast and not deliberate as chris was talking about and not have to wait for a parliament or a, you know some governing body to sign on to things and just act and just do things left and right well, and I think fear is is the big word there, because what is a right-wing movement, right? Uh, a right-wing movement only has fear as its entire base motivator. It is not seeking an actual platform. You know, that's, that's why, you know, progressive platforms are kind of always 
And again, when I say progressive, I truly mean like liberal, which I don't necessarily always respect, but at least liberals want progress, right? They want it slowly, and they want it as long as it doesn't hurt white privilege, but they want some kind of progress, whereas the conservatives, the opposite, is they don't care what's on the platform as long as it is a walk back, as long as it is to end progress and not march into that unknown. And it's based on fear. And if we're going to, you know, whether we're talking about early 20th century fascism, you know, which is the fear that their old racial divides will be gone or that, you know, Jews will overtake their economies or whatever, or the modern day uh, where it's fear that, like, you know, people of color will have some rights, you know, that, that that's terrifying and that's new. And that's, you know, there's a, God, there's a, a meme, you know, where people talk about the fragility of millennials and Gen Zers. You know, and the, the the joke is you you know you people were were would cry and whine if someone of a different color used your water fountain, you know, and it's that same thing. It, it's that fear that if anything changes, I could lose something, and that is terrifying. And that is all right wing movement is. It is complete and utter fear of the unknown. Yeah, equality feels like oppression to the privileged. Absolutely, Every when you're time. on the top. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I think of um, in modern times, the caravan, right? Like every single yeah. night on Fox News, you heard about the migrant caravan, and then boom! As soon as the election was over, you never heard about it again. How weird! Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then uh, you know, it's almost like we, it was bullshit. Well, because then the fears changed, and they're still just going to the same concentration camp anyway. Um, and yep. now it's not a talking point anymore because the right won't talk about it because they're pro concentration camp, and the liberal Democrats won't talk about it because that makes them feel bad. Yeah, that's true. Number four is disagreement is treason. So it says, quote, the critical spirit makes distinctions, and to distinguish is a sign of modernism. (laughs) In modern culture, the scientific community praises disagreement as a way to improve knowledge. Yeah, so... Basically, if you disagree... I think that makes the scientific community look pretty good, but... (laughs) Oh, yeah, I added the last sentence there. Yeah. The, the, the main thing is critical spirit makes distinctions, and to distinguish is a sign of modernism. So if you, if you accept the consensus of the scientific community, you are committing treason in the eyes of the state under a fascist regime. Sounds about white. <laughs> Number five is fear of difference. The, f- the first appeal of a fascist or prematurely fascist movement is an appeal against the intruders. So we were talking about, you know, fear of immigration, fear of migrants, etc. Therefore, fascism is racist by definition. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's always an element of some other that, that is demonized and often, you know, genocide is committed against them. So that is absolutely a marker of fascism. Yeah, and then not just, again, not just uh, 20th century Eastern European fascism. Again, here in the United States, you know, it, that was one of the scariest things about uh, about Donald Trump's um, campaign was it was clearly, you know, voted for by people who knew nothing of history. Um, you know, America first is not Donald Trump's slogan. Not only did Reagan run on that, but that, that's from the Lindbergh era. You know, mm-hmm. that was people who... Yeah, which I'll get to because I have notes on that. Yeah, people who were terrified that Jews would come over to Ellis Island from Europe, God forbid. And it was, you know, again, Henry Ford is the one who, who publishes and puts out the, the pamphlet on the, the Elders of Zion, which is this crazy, just insane tinfoil hat, anti-Semitic um, 
piece of propaganda. And it's, it's always that it is, that is the fear. And that is the thing you need to be afraid of. And it's, it has to, there has to be a racial element to it, it has to be whether or not we're the Aryans and we need to conquer other people or Mexican people are coming to both be lazy and also take over your job simultaneously somehow. Um, that is what you have to fear is, is you have to, this is a proud country of immigrants. And I just wish we didn't have so many immigrants. It has to be the talking point of the right. Well, no, and I think, Chris, you nail it, and I think you know this as a history you know, enthusiast like me, but it goes deeper than that in the U.S. where you have the Know Nothing Party, where it was basically a nativist party. Yep. That was their entire platform, right? It's like protection of the status quo, protection of Anglo-Saxons and, and uh, Euro-Americans in, in a seat of power. Which, again, is, is cyclical. Here we have Marjorie Taylor Greene, you know, what was it, six months ago, who was, who was trying to float the idea of an Anglo-Saxon caucus. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, her notes, I'm, I'm just surprised they're not in German. <laughs> Crazy. Um, there, there is an appeal to social frustration. We, of course, know this one's true. This is number six. This direct, uh, directly reminds me of the, the fake populist right, specifically the Donald Trumps and the Tucker Carlsons of the world. Um, one of the most typical features of historical fascism was the appeal to a frustrated middle class a class suffering from an economic crisis or feelings of political humiliation. And this was frightened by the pressure of lower social groups. So, you know, you can't have a group from a lower socioeconomic status rise up because that means that you're going to be losing something. Yeah, the, um, you know, the, the lowest masses will always be divided by the upper, by the ruling class. The ruling class has a long history of taking the working class and dividing it amongst itself. You know, in the South, you know, pre-Civil War South, you know, um, we have, um, sorry, <clears throat> uh, in the pre-Civil War South, you have the, the ruling class, which, you know, we're talking about plantation owners and the ultra-wealthy textile owners. They were constantly dividing them. I mean, you got to remember that, like, um, white farm workers did not have much better working condition than African slaves. Mm -hmm. They were simply allowed to work their way out of it and their children wouldn't be guaranteed. You know, there wasn't, they weren't part of the chattel slave system, but they also had terrible conditions, but they were constantly told by plantation owners, well, at least you're not them. And that was meant to keep them in line because God forbid white farm workers start seeing a little bit of solidarity, um, you know, with, with, with slaves, because that would, that would be a big fucking problem for some plantation owners. Yeah. Well, that's, you know, Bacon's Rebellion and, and that whole, oh, yeah. the, the birth of the African slave as, a, you know, a slave for life as, as opposed to an indentured servant. But the other piece of this is uh, the, the social grievance politics that, that the right wing has honed into just like such a well-oiled machine at this point. Like, you know, Mr. Potato Head, all that stuff. They can take any issue. Um, and, and I had Ross Barkin, the, you know, the writer from New York who's, you know, really done some really great work and he pointed out that whenever there's a void the republicans will fill that void with some social grievance and and it's true now that since he said that every time i look that they're drumming up some new issue that they're getting outraged about it it just it fits they're filling the void whenever they can keeping the attention on them keeping their voting their voter base you know convinced that they have their back well, and it's and it's complete. You know, the, the the followers don't even necessarily look into it. I I have a this is anecdotal, um, 
but you know, my uh, my mother runs a food pantry. Uh, that's what she does. She's the director of a food pantry. And some woman came in. This is God. I want to say almost a year ago. Um, and it was during the Dr. Seuss issue um, when, God forbid, the, the publishers of Dr. Seuss decided to not publish a couple of the books that no one cared about. Um, she literally brought out an entire box of brand new Dr. Seuss books and said, oh, you know, uh, I, was, I had these as gifts for my grandchildren, you know, for Christmas, and now we're not going to give them anymore because they've canceled Dr. Seuss. And literally, you know, her assistant was there, and she said, no one has canceled Dr. Seuss. That's not a thing. <laughs> like, it's not, no, no, the, you're, the, the libraries are throwing them away, and they're illegal now. And she, oh. No, that's not even close to true. And the woman <laughs> just wouldn't hear it. And it was just, no, 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 they're saying it on TV, that the Dr. Seuss is illegal now. And it was just like, it's just, it's insanity that someone would, you know, conservatives pick this thing that doesn't even exist. It's not even happening. They fabricate this oppression and then spit it out to their followers who then will amplify it themselves into not only something that didn't exist, but even the talking point now, it, it seems tame by comparison. Right. And that also points to their need for like a really clear binary, right? Like good or bad. Whereas you look at Dr. Seuss and there, there are some, you know, anti-black. So there are some other problematic themes in his books, but he also worked hard to educate the American public on what Jews were going through in Nazi Germany. Like, you know, he, he that, that it's the nuance that makes history so interesting for me, but it's, it, there are so many people who just can't grasp it. They need to get this person's, you know, a hero or this person's a villain. There's nothing in between for them. Well, and how much do we hear about, you know, the right clamoring and crying about cancel culture, which I mean, let's be fair. First of all, cancel culture it. isn't, isn't a thing. It doesn't exist. <laughs> It's consequences for your shitty actions, and it's people not wanting to buy your product because you were being an asshole. That's all it really is. Um, but they, they scream and cry about cancel culture, and it's gone too far. But then we have Ted Cruz, you know, crying like a child about Big Bird, and we have Dr. <laughs> Seuss, and we have Mr. Potato Head. And, God, what was it? Wasn't like a year or two ago when we had all the right-wingers smashing their Keurigs and, and you know, burning football jerseys, well, and they were getting rid of Harleys? Burning the Nike gear they had already paid yeah. for, which was just incredible. Oh, same with the Keurigs. Like, you bought a Keurig and you <laughs> thrown it out. Why do they always have to burn it, too? Like, why can't, why can't you just throw it away? Like, well, because they don't necessarily have books and crosses around, so. <laughs> <laughs> burned all those, too. Yeah, they pretty burned them. Um, <clears throat> number seven is there's an obsession with a plot. So at the root of all fascist uh, psychology, there's an obsession with the plot, possibly an international one. The followers must feel besieged in, by an eternal enemy. So immigrants, Muslims, Latinos, black people. Historically, of course, this is, this is Jewish people that are made to be the quote-unquote enemy, uh, in air quotes, for the people listening to the audio version. So yeah, there's, there's always a group to be afraid of. Yeah, you have to have an other, and that's and again, that's not even just. Um, it's definitely amplified in fascism, but that exists everywhere. I mean, our current two-party system, which, to be fair, I, I run the option that the Democrats are also fascist. Um, I think they're both fascist parties. Uh, one's just you know loud about it. Um, if not, they certainly enable it. Exactly. It's kind of like yeah, it's like you don't have to be a racist to 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 be a Donald Trump voter, but uh, you probably are. And even if you're not, it's clearly not a deal breaker for you. Yeah. Um, and, and the same applies to the DNC and th that otherism. Both parties simply run on well. At least we're not the other guy because that's powerful. That moves people. That again, we were talking earlier about fear. Fear and negativity 
are much bigger motivators than things you agree with. And then for, so for, for a fascist regime to take over, people actually have to willingly give up a shit ton of civil liberties. You have to scare the shit out of them. And you have to basically say like, oh, yeah, I see that. A nice guy over there with the dreadlocks and the prayer shawl? Yeah, oh yeah, he's a lizard man who's coming to eat your babies. <laughs> you know, and you have to convince people of that. And there, no, there's, a, there's, just, there's a serious, like, big conspiracy where they're hoarding gold and conquering the world economy and blah, blah, blah. And it's, and it's really yeah. sad, too, because this, this anti-Semitism that comes out of Eastern Europe is a product of Jewish people being incredibly successful in certain fields because it was the only fields left to them. Jewish people could not own land. They could not own businesses. I mean, there was already a major anti-Semitic component where these guys were not allowed to do anything. And so what do you have? You have things like money lending and entertainment and things where you, you, you have to rely on a family connection because that's all you have because you're literally being kept out of the halls of success. And then, God forbid, through generations of struggle, you actually manage to pull off a living for your family, suddenly like, oh, see, they're taking over. No, and Chris, you make a good point about how it's amplified in, in fascism. And I think the reason it's amplified in a, in a fascist state is because another hallmark of that fascist state is the, the idea that, that violence is, is actually productive, right? That violence isn't evil. The way that violence is messaged, and, and, you know, we've seen it in so many fascist states where there are actually, like, roving gangs of street fighters, um, you know, in Nazi Germany ready to fight communists or whoever the boogeyman might be in that moment. But it's that, that's, I think it gets at another piece of fascism, which is that, that violence can be productive. That, re- yeah. that reminds me of, like, the, the vigilante justice movement that has persisted in the United States following the George Floyd protests, like yeah, Rittenhouse. Yeah, yeah. I was yeah. Gonna say, Kyle Rittenhouse is the elephant in the room. He's exactly who I'm thinking of. Hey, hey, he was just there to help. He brought his 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 <laughs> AR-15 fire extinguisher. You know, and he shoots people three, like, uh, shoot people three times in self defense because. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> Um, I, I think I think Pat's got a really good point there, where that is a unique, um, you know, hallmark of fascism is is the encouragement of these roving gangs. Because you know, where where would Hitler be without his brown shirts? Yeah. You can't have a beer hall push. You can't have crystal knocked. You can't have a burning of the Reichstag without a mob squad. Mm-hmm. It's yeah, and, and that reminds me exactly of the lynch mob squads in the United States. Right. Wait, you mean like the LAPD or? <laughs> yeah, those ones too. Which matter of fact, the, the chief of the LAPD chief of police actually tried to make an arrest in France recently. I, I literally just saw oh, a, a news thing flash on my phone saying he's the ugly American and I haven't read it yet. So yeah. you tried to arrest someone in France? <laughs> yeah. Well, They're in, like, in, uh, you're 5,700 miles outside of your jurisdiction. Well, no, and your your comment, Chris, is not. I'm sure you know this again, but the 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 roots of police in in most of the southeast of the United States are as slave patrols, as literal slave catchers. Yeah. And you know, I'm sure they lynched them when they caught them. Very. And often. that's in the south, and then in the north, they exist to uh, to murder union leaders. Right. Yeah. You know, so it's either anti work, it's either anti worker or anti black. That is mm-hmm. that is the foundations yeah, of the and police. I, I did an entire episode on the Red Summer of 1919. If you guys know Oof. what that is. 
Yeah, that's heavy, man. That's that, that, that was not a sunshiny podcast, I bet. <laughs> no, not at all. But my point is, <clears throat> a lot of people don't know this. They think of just lynchings occurring during the times of slavery. That was well past when slavery was over. And 1919 was the year the most lynchings took place in the United States. Right. <clears throat> no, it was a major, uh, you know, tactic used by whites to keep black people from voting, to keep black people from, you know, taking advantage of any of the number of rights that they had now gained at that point. I mean, I don't know. We keep talking about history, but last week someone told me to wear a mask, and I'm pretty sure that was as bad as the Holocaust. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> Have you seen these guys with their yellow yeah. stars of David at, at, yeah. at, at town oh. hall meetings? It's insanity. That was, oh. that was one of the, the things that Marjorie Taylor Greene said, right? Like yeah. a month or two ago or whatever, she goes to the National Holocaust Museum and she's like, okay, I take back what I said. It actually is as bad as they said. Oh, wow. <laughs> is basically what she get, said. I'm surprised she didn't get a those people out. So well done. <laughs> Remember, this is Jewish space laser lady. Yeah. Right. Which, by the way, can we just talk about like, Death Star of David was right there. <laughs> and you went with Jewish Space Laser. Like, you could have had such a cool brand. The conspiracy theories don't even make sense. <clears throat> like, the, the U.S. government is just going to implement a massive forest fire. Does that make sense? Well, this actually goes back to kind of what we're talking about, believe it or not. This is the, the, so there's this, um, there's this group of incredibly, you know, this incredibly wealthy British family, right, um, called the Rothschilds. And they're a banking conglomerate. And they were always, I mean, since, since, since time immortal, they've been a very wealthy family, very connected family. They've run the halls of power. They're very wealthy. And they're the Jeff Bezos of the 18th and 19th centuries. It's hell, even 17th century. Um, and then they came to prominence after Napoleon, right? Like after the Battle of Waterloo, they pulled this really dirty trick where they literally convinced people that Napoleon won. Um, and the stock market crashes. Hold on. I think we lost. Yeah, we lost Jordan, which is the one that matters. Yeah, it was a history of the podcast. Me and Pat can sit here and jerk off about history all night, but we got any Jordan around. Wait, but it still has it's that still little. still recording. Yeah. So let's give him a second. He'll be back. Yeah, there we go. No, I'm still there. Sorry, I just had to say something to my roommate real quick. Oh, oh. no worries. We thought we lost you. No, I'm still here, guys. Sorry about that. Um, oh, you're gone. So anyway, so these Rothschilds literally pulled this trick where they actually had messengers give false reports of Napoleon winning and then they tanked the stock market and then bought up half the stock market. Uh, it, it's, it's a typical shit asshole business move, but whatever. I mean, could you? this is something I wouldn't put past Elon Musk, right? Um. And because of this, they become one of the wealthiest people, period. They own half the Bank of England, that kind of thing. They also happen to be Jewish. And that coincidence is just too much for some people. And so, therefore, it leads to the Rothschilds are running the Jewish conspiracy to take over the world. And it also happens to be that, that you know, shell companies that the Rothschilds own also happen to be part of the people who are helping fund the rail here in California, the fast, uh, the mag rail, it's going to go from north to south. And she somehow made this connection of there's going to be a train. There are some trees in the way. Several of the millions of investors happen to be British, and one of them is the Rothschilds, and they happen to be Jewish. Therefore, 
the rabbi down the street has a space laser. Like that's where she took it. That's where her dots connected and it's dizzying. Um, but that's where it comes from. And that all comes from this era that we're talking about, this rise of fascism, this Rothschild conspiracy. Um, it was one of the ones really held up um, to be the oppression of the Jews was look what the Rothschilds are doing in England. They're taking over the world. And it was used as this constant scapegoat and it was an excuse to oppress. And yeah, it's no um, wonder that MTG is using it. It makes makes perfect sense. It's the continuation of the Jewish question. Yeah, if the Third Reich did it, MTG agrees with it. Yeah, totally. I mean, yeah, she's a Nazi. Yeah. <laughs> um, <clears throat> number eight, anti-elitism. So the followers are made to feel humiliated by the wealth and the strength of the educated elite. This is used to create a sense of resentment. <clears throat> I pointed out that in, in 1932, the year before Adolf Hitler became dictator of Germany, Aldous Huxley actually wrote A Brave New World, which is a dystopian science fiction novel about a society that's ruled by an intelligence-based social hierarchy. <clears throat> I thought that was pretty interesting. There's actually a cool world word that comes out of that era called a technocracy. Mm, um, and it also believes in like ruling of the educated and the intelligent um, to make those decisions. And I mean, it, it sounds both wonderful and terrifying because who doesn't want the intelligent, the intelligent people running the world? That's how it should be. But also that sounds like we're putting up a couple of people to run the world. And that also scares the shit out of me. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, it's, it has to be a little better than the plutocracy we have here. Right. It's like, you know, do we want people who are in the place they're in because they were born into money and made it work for themselves, or do we want it to be based on some level of intelligence? You know, I just don't know because yeah, there's a balance there for sure. Yeah, on the side of nepotism, we have people like Donald Trump and um, uh, I'm brain farting Tesla, um, Elon, Elon Musk. Elon and Elon Musk. These guys didn't do shit. They're idiots. They inherited you know, massive amounts of wealth. And that's where they got to over there. But then we also have like, okay, well, what about people who were able to pull something off themselves? All actually did it through hard work. It's like, mm -hmm. so Jeff Bezos, that's, that's who we want. No, like that's the thing is the, the tenacity to become a captain of industry from nothing requires you to be an absolute sociopath. Oh yeah. You have to be, yeah, that's exactly it. You have to be a psychopath or a sociopath to, in order to succeed at that level. There's just no way you do it any other way. Yeah. The caring, caring about other people really gets in the way. Oh, it does. It does. <laughs> um, number nine is passivism is trafficking with the enemy. So for a fascist, life is permanent warfare. Therefore, a desire for peace is deemed treasonous. So kind of what you guys were talking about earlier with Crystal Knot and just gangs forming throughout Nazi Germany. As long as there's violence that's not being initiated against the state, it's, it's open with welcome arms because uh, th there just has to be a state of violence and warfare going on at all times. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> Number 10 is a contempt for the weak. A fascist leader utterly despises those that are underneath them in society. So this is the sick, the elderly, the disabled. These members of society are openly mocked, ignored, and killed. How does this not draw up, you know, a direct connection to Donald Trump and, you know, the um, making the hand gesture that was just like so ridiculously juvenile, but making fun of someone with, you know, some type of disability and 
I mean, it just left and right. He did as, as much as you could possibly imagine, just showing his contempt for anyone who he deemed underneath him. You know, even though he himself, I mean, again, this guy, he takes two. I mean, here's the thing is, is if you notice in the beginning of Donald Trump's presidency, um, he, he may be old and and, you know, obese and whatever. He's, he's not svelte by any means, but he seems to be a well operating human. Right. And then I don't know if you remember two years into his presidency. Suddenly he's rushed to Walter Reed Hospital for no reason. Now, the White House has a hospital. There's literally a gurney room with a surgeon on staff 24 seven. No, it was any- to get a jump on his physical. Remember, yes. they just had to they had to get that physical started. <laughs> the president doesn't get airlifted to Walter Reed unless he's shot. Like shit has to be real fucking bad for a helicopter to take the president to Walter Reed because he's got better better health care in his basement than you do at a hospital. Mm-hmm. Um, and then all of a sudden he comes back and he's talking real slow and things aren't making as much sense. He's taking two hands to hold up a bottle of water. You know, remember that video of him stumbling down this the the ramp and the general had to hold him up and it's like dude, he fucking had a stroke had a or something. Stroke. Yeah, he clearly had a stroke. And this is the guy who mocks people with a physical disability, kind of like Pat was saying, where it's this disdain because it has nothing to do with reality. It's you know, Pat, I think you said it perfectly, where it's whoever the leader views as below them. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't matter who is or who is not or what is. A hierarchy of, of ableism seems like the most ridiculous fucking contest to ever talk about. But that's what the right does. And again, it's back to that, well, at least I'm not that guy. Yeah, the left, the left, I would argue, the reason that they're not united is because we're constantly arguing about policies and different ideologies that we want to implement. And the right is united because all they really care about is who the leader is. At the end of the day, they have pretty much everything in common. They just care about who's in charge. Yeah, and, and the fascists have done the same mistake um, that you see what the communists did. You know, this is this is this is the one thing that fascists and tankies have in common is they rely on this cult of personality. You know, Hitler needed yep. it, Trump needed it, but so did Mao and Stalin. You know, Lenin dies and he's like, no, I'm going to write some books and we're going to lead a revolution together. And me and Trotsky are going to do cool shit, whatever. And then he dies and, and you know, fucking Stalin comes out and he's like, by the way, I'm Jesus. Like, it's, <laughs> it's this 180 overnight. Statues go up. Cities get named Leningrad, Stalingrad. Look at Mao. He's, you know, he's got his own red book and no one's a revolutionary unless I say they are. It's this total gatekeeping of the revolution. It's really weird. Um, and it's the same thing with fascists. And that's because, honestly... At the end, Stalin and Mao were really just like uh, you were talking about with Mussolini. We're, we're really switching over to the side of the fash, and it requires that. And just like Trump, Trump could die tomorrow, and they're going to wave Trump flags. It is the new swastika. Mm-hmm. It yep. is the American swastika is the Trump flag and the Blue Lives Matter flag. Yeah, absolutely. They, they, they still think he's probably going to become president again. Hey, once he dies, he and JFK will come back. He's going to be brought back in. They'll rescue the babies from Hillary's pizza basement, and and <laughs> and they'll use their tinfoil hats to deflect the Jewish space lasers, and it's going to be fine. No, I mean that Blue Lives Matter flag or even the sticker, whatever, the T-shirt, it just – when I see that, I'm like, 
Uh, well, when I see it, though, I'm, I'm thinking to myself, okay, so you're okay with fascism. You, you want yeah. the U.S. to be a fascist state. Yeah. Uh, Pat, I don't know where you are in the world. Uh, you're on the East Coast, right? Yeah, Boston. Okay. So, so, <laughs> so in the 805, um, there's actually in Simi Valley, uh, there's this, it, again, it's one of the, I live, I don't live in Simi Valley, thankfully, but I live Simi adjacent. Um, <laughs> and it's bad, man. I have friends that live there. I go in there a lot. And they have signs on, ha- on all of the main streets saying, we love our cops. It's mm-hmm. literally just a metal sign that just says, praise be to the pigs. It's all, they're just kiss a pig signs everywhere you go. It's fucking weird. <laughs> and seeming Pat, just so you know, Simi Valley has always been hyper-racialized mm-hmm. um, because that's where the Rodney King trial took place. Oh, wow. Yeah. And famously, that was like 35 miles away from where the beating actually took place. And they moved it to Simi Valley because they knew it was a wealthy suburb of Los Angeles where a lot of white cops live. Yeah, and that's where all the cops from the Los Angeles Police Department and sheriffs live. They all—it's—it's it's a joke. It's yeah, kind of like it, if you live in New York when you retire, you go to Florida. Uh, it's the same kind of thing. If you if you work in law enforcement in the Los Angeles area, you live in Simi Valley because it is this white fascist paradise. Yes. Yeah. And instead of the wild, the, the uh, signs that you're describing, I've seen this uh, this one sign in a lot of places here in Massachusetts, and these people are are. They stand out. There aren't that many of them here, and mm-hmm. in, in, luckily in this area. But the, it'll say uh, defund the police, and then defund is crossed out, and defend is written in, as if oh that's like God, that's the most clever line they could come up with. And also, it's just like this blanket defense of the police instead of like we're looking at trying to just reimagine the way that resources are used. You know, it's, but anyway, yeah, I know <laughs> it's 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 hard to even like talk to people like that because for for us you know reasonable people i think defunding the police is just a moderate position like if you're against that i don't even really know what to say because i mean how could you say that we need more police funding and more cops that's fucking insane or how could you say that it'll work right you look at our we, we have four percent of the world's population but 25 percent of the incarcerated population it's yeah, how not can you say, working yeah. we're not clearly well, and, not the safest and, country and, and, and black people in America are, what, 11% of the population, 12% of the population, and they make up over a quarter of the prison population, of our insanely high prison population. And again, we don't just have the highest prison population per capita. We also have it in total numbers. Countries with twice our population have total less prisoners than us. We lead both ways. It's not just percentage. It's total. We are a prison country. Um, and kind of like you're saying about the people who defend the cops and, and about defunding, it's they always do that kind of straw man argument. Like, and they take it with anything like, okay, Pat, um, let's have an argument. I'm going to be the right winger. What's your favorite pizza topping? Oh, I'd have to say pineapple. Okay. So you want pineapple? I don't want pineapple. I want pepperoni. Can we do, do, but why do you like pineapple? Because it's delicious. Why do you hate pizza, Pat? Why do you hate America, (laughs) Pat? That's it. That's it. That's exactly what it is. Hey, I think we should spend more money on helping people. Why do you hate police and crime? And why do you love crime? It's like, I mean, I do. But like, what's this idea that it has to be this extreme? And that's what that 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 thin blue line. First of all, I hate that thin blue line thing because not only will the fascists um, actually correct you. It's not Blue Lives Matter. It's Thin Blue Line. First of all, you're not even original. You stole that. That's a British poem called The Thin Red Line. 
Secondly, it's pretty fucked up. It's basically about how the red British military is the only thing keeping barbarians civilized. So it's and that's basically what up. they think too. Uh huh. <laughs> and then they stole it. And then they, uh, they they totally took it over and made it the thin blue line. And we're the ones keeping the barbarians away. And it's again, it's the new swastika. It really is. It's if you see that sticker on the back of a truck or on someone's T-shirt or on someone's hat, you see that black flag with the blue line. It's like, I already know I can't engage with you. Right. And the other thing about it that I just always find ironic is that it's a violation of the flag code. Any alteration of the flag, mm-hmm. any any wearing of the flag as, you know, on a T-shirt or on, say, painted on the back window of your truck, those are all violations of the way that we're supposed to treat our flag. Three years ago, as part of a group that burned a flag on the 4th of July on Donald Trump's star in Hollywood. <laughs> nice. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, I, was, I was with this protest group, and they didn't know what to do. I was like, why don't we burn a flag on a star? Let's fucking do it. So little did I know part of this group was Joey fucking Johnson from Johnson v. Texas, the guy who made it legal to burn a flag in this oh, country. Wow. Cool. I actually got to burn a flag with him. I was like, dude, I wrote a paper on you. That's fucking um, it was amazing. Yeah, he, he's, he, he's a pretty cool dude. Um, got to hang out with him. Anyway, so we burned a flag, and this guy was screaming, right? He was, ah, oh, you're fucking disrespecting the flag. It was 4th of July. He was wearing red, white, and blue flag shorts. Right. So to cut up and rub your balls on the flag is totally cool. That's not disrespecting. It's the weirdest thing. And yeah, it's well, worship of the state. It's religion. Yeah, we'll, t- really we'll, talk about, we'll talk about patriotism and nationalism in a bit because that, that shit's fucking crazy when it comes to Germany and the United States. The differences. <clears throat> Corporate says these are the same picture. (laughs) Um, Number 11 is the cult of heroism. So the fascist is eager to die a hero's death. Out of impatience, he'll send many to their deaths. I think this one also, you know, speaks to what Chris was talking about before and the cult of personality and the idea that, you know, that there's there's always a leader in a fascist state who says only I can do it. You know, with all these other people, you'll be screwed. You need me to fix it. And, you know, Trump pulled all that same stuff, too. But, yeah, this is uh, absolutely a marker of fascism. Uh, Number 12 is uh, machismo. So fascists show disdain for women, disregard for chastity and complete condemnation of members of the LGBTQ community. Oh, yeah, machismo, yeah. Um, it's Spanish, right? It's, it's absolutely, it's literally this weird celebration of misogyny. Yeah, toxic mas- masculinity. You know, people, I would have, if I had voted for Trump and then learned all the things we learned about the various times he raped women, you know, or whatever, I just can't, I can't even get around the fact that people just brush that off, but this one, 12, really, you know, machismo and, and the celebration of that machismo really explains it away pretty quickly. The same people that gave Bill Clinton shit for getting a consensual blowjob. But yeah. let's be fair. Bill Clinton also sexually assaulted Jennifer Flowers. Yeah, that's true. He did. That, when, see, when it's real sexual assault, it's brushed under the rug. When it's, when it's, a, when it's a Democrat actually sexually assaulting someone, it's, it's, that's something we can't talk about. Because you remember, Joe Biden had two allegations. One of them was a Russian bot. One of them was fucking credible. Joe Biden has a credible rape allegation from an intern where he shoved her against the wall. What, like, was, her, what was her name again? I can't remember. We'd have to Google it. Tara Reid. It's Tara Reid. Okay, Tara thank Reed. you. Yeah. Um, 
because I remember there was two of them and one of them was total bullshit. Um, and the other one was legit. And like the only people she told was like her brother, her shrink and her mom, you know? And like, they've all like, even the therapist is like, yeah, that, that, that absolutely is what happened 30 fucking years ago. And it's like, that was just brushed under the rug. And same with Clinton. It's like Clinton gets a consensual blow job, which don't get me wrong. It's not great. Was there a power dynamic of oh, someone yeah. a lot younger? Right. Sure. That's the point. She couldn't have said no. You know? Yeah. I mean, to be fair, like I think consent is pretty weak, but at least she was an adult who wanted it. So it's like, it's in a gray zone. Um, but he absolutely sexually assaulted someone when he was governor of Arkansas. But that part got swept under the rug because you can't push it away. You have to you have to sweep it under the rug because it's not easily dismissible. Yeah, you don't even hear about that. Yeah. Well, you look at Tara Reid, and and the other thing that they did was they went right into character assassination mode. Right? They they dug up a paper she wrote that was laudatory of Vladimir Putin, which you know, weird, very weird stuff, but still not relevant in the slightest. It was all the same people, too, that were coalescing around the Me Too movement, but they were right. not willing yeah. to call out their own. Right. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Complete hypocrites. Well, and again, it's, you know, that's the thing is, is both of these sides are going to be hypocritical because when it's, you know, kids in cages is a terrible thing. Having concentration camps is awful. We hated that Trump did that. And then Biden gets them and it's, well, you know, they're migrant detention relocation centers. They're, I mean, they're Mexican happy camp. And then yeah, suddenly uh, that's, you know, Biden's completely fucking up COVID. But you hear, oh, well, you know, he's following the science. You know, he's got vaccines. He's telling people the right things. Well, it's not yeah. working. <laughs> <clears throat> Whatever. Um, number 13 is selective populism. So under fascism, the voice of the people is not the Democratic majority, but only the voices of those who support the leader. More yeah, Dr. Carlson. The silent yeah. majority, you know, you heard Nixon employing this, um, and it has been employed since then. But yeah, absolutely, there's a group of people who are more deserving, and thus they're they're the group that I'm going to be talking to, and they're the group that's going to be following me. Yeah. Um, and the final point is number fourteen, which is your fascism speaks newspeak, as in Orwell's 1984, fascists use an impoverished vocabulary and an elementary-level syntax to limit complex and critical reasoning skills. Fake news. Yep, dumb everything down. Fake news. <laughs> and then <clears throat> I have a quote from Sinclair Lewis. He said, when fascism comes to America, it'll be wrapped in the flag and carrying a cross. Yep. Well, no. Or carrying an AR. But yeah. yeah. Donald Trump right here. Yep. There's actually, I remember during the... Uh, um, God, I'm sorry, guys. Tonight, I'm just really fucking, I'm out of it. Um, uh, the, the Palin and McCain uh, election. So I saw that. Yeah, I saw the, yeah, but someone had made a meme during that time, and they had this picture of Sarah Palin holding a cross with a flag over her. <laughs> and it was a perfect example. But yeah, that's, you know, carrying a cross and, and wrapped in a flag is perfect. And, and Pat's got a good point, too, is, yeah, the AR. And it's and it's really sad. I hate that. Kind of like uh, what we were talking about a couple weeks ago on my podcast about how you hate how the right has taken over libertarianism. Yes. Um, how ridiculous that is. And it's the same with, with gun rights. It, it kills me that gun ownership is a right-wing point where it's like, no, Marx talked about this. And the Black Panther Party came to prominence because it's like, no, we need an armed left-wing movement same with freedom and liberty disarm the right-wingers yeah yeah right same with freedom and liberty yeah yeah lady liberty is an anarchist symbol uh christianity was also for the longest time a left-wing concept 
Oh, yeah. You're talking about a, a brown-skinned, peace-loving dude who hated the government, didn't like money, hung out with sex workers, traveled around with 12 obscure dudes, and told everyone to just not be a dick and share what they have. You're talking about, tell me that guy's not a conservative? <laughs> I, I, I specifically... Sounds like a Republican, weird. Yeah, I, I recall Lazarus getting a copay bill. I'm pretty sure that happened. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, I have a question for you guys. Uh, I've discussed on my previous episodes the relationship between neoliberalism and fascism. So in your sense, uh, whoever wants to take this one first, how do you see the relationship? I think you need to pick one of us. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I'll go with you, Chris. Uh, okay, so when you're talking about neoliberalism. You're talking about like Reagan era, right? Uh, yes. Okay. Yeah, that, that neoliberalism is it, – it almost – okay, like Lenin had this great quote where he said imperialism is the final form. The highest stage um, of, of capital. The highest state of capital, exactly. Um, and it's the same kind of thing. Was when you look at that neoliberal era, that's where we get laissez-faire capitalism in America. Uh, that's where we get um, uh, Keynesian economics, and America starts pushing into a consumer culture, and it becomes this obey the almighty stock market culture. Uh, it's very financially driven, and that's where I think it comes into kind of a fascist regime. Is we have this marriage of the economy and state. You know, we have a a long history of unions and workers' movements here in the United States that has slowly eroded. Well, literally, the the airline industry, the the air traffic controllers went on strike for valid reasons, did it legally, and rather than forcing the airline companies to give in to their demands, he threatened them all with prison if they didn't go back to work. Forced labor. And fired him. And he fired him. And he fired him. Completely just... Yeah. You know, he, he to balance the budget, he closed down mental health facilities, but he had no problem. You want to talk about space lasers? That's Reagan with the Star Wars project. Yeah, you know, we went to this weird Cold War, and this idea that the economy must survive above the people—that's where that's kind of new. Like, don't get me wrong, this is the country of Carnegie. I mean, the, we we are a capitalist, ultra capitalist, disgusting nation. But the idea of the economy being a national concern to the average worker. That's where that starts with neoliberalism. And I think that's the entryway into it. And I think everything falls from there. That's when you start seeing the hatred of immigrants. That's where you start seeing Reagan and Bush calling the AIDS crisis the gay flu. You know, um, That's where you start seeing them otherizing Americans. And oh, there's a homeless problem? We need to start rounding up homeless people and putting them in prison. And it, you, you really start to see America deteriorate during the neolib movement. Um, and I think neolib is the stepping stone to get to a fascist state i completely yeah, agree in that era you also had like you know milton friedman who says that the company's sole purpose yes. is to, to make money and add value for shareholders um the other piece of this is the idea not just neoliberalism but the idea of a liberal democracy and how much you know, deliberation and, and how it takes time for things to get done. And I think in in a way that also gives rise to, to people supporting the idea of fascism because they want someone who's able to act quickly, make decisions unilaterally, and get things, quote unquote, done. Right. Democracy really gets in the way, huh? Yeah, right. <laughs> Slow process. <clears throat> okay, I wanted to move on to and change the topics now, so... Now I want to talk about how the United States specifically inspired Nazi Germany. Uh, my source here is how the Nazis were inspired by Jim Crow by Becky Little from History.com. 
So lawyers in Nazi Germany studied the American Jim Crow laws to learn about how to disenfranchise and persecute Jews um, during World War II and the Holocaust. <clears throat> and specifically, they did so when they were crafting their infamous Nuremberg Laws in 1935. They, the Nazis took direct inspiration from uh, the Jim Crow laws that existed across the United States. And James Q. Whitman, who is an author of Hitler's American Model and a professor at Yale Law School, details why America served as a model for the Nazis uh, by stating, quote, America in the early 20th century was the leading racist jurisdiction in the world, end quote. He continues on by saying that Nazi lawyers, as a result, were interested in, looked very closely at, and were ultimately influenced by American race law. <clears throat> and that's, uh, once again, from James Q. Whitman, the author. Uh, the Nazis, in particular, admired the Jim Crow laws that segregated black Americans from white Americans, and they debated whether or not to implement similar measures in Germany, and ultimately they decided the measures in America wouldn't work in Germany because black Americans were already poor and thus very oppressed, and Jewish people in Germany were relatively rich and more powerful, especially in comparison to black Americans. <clears throat> And so because of this factor, the Nazis were more interested in how the U.S. had designated Native Americans, Filipinos, and other groups as non-citizens, even though they lived in the U.S. or its territories. And these models of discrimination directly influenced the citizenship aspect of the Nuremberg Laws, which stripped Jewish Germans of their citizenship and then changed their statuses to nationals. In addition, uh, the Third Reich was obsessed with America's genocide of the Native Americans during the westward expansion and Hitler looked at it as a model of success for his ambitions to expand Nazi Germany across the European continent and really served as his main motivation in imperializing uh, across Europe. The 1924 Immigration Act, before all this happened, too, was a, um, a law that was passed in the United States, and this served as big-time motivation for the Nazis as well. And I actually had a TikTok clip that I wanted to play. It's about three minutes that breaks this down really well. So if you guys don't mind, I'm going to pull this up. So this is America Invented Eugenics, and credit goes to Stay Curious, my friends, on TikTok. When you come across the word eugenics, you likely think of evil factors, doctors, carrying out unthinkable procedures on poor, helpless victims. And you'd be right. But it may interest you to know that these guys didn't come up with the idea. We did. In the early 20th century, America was being flooded with immigrants. In an attempt to improve the quality of the American gene pool, Congress passed the 1924 Immigration Act to prevent immigration by genetically inferior groups. Italians, Jews, Eastern Europeans, and countless others. But what about the undesirables who are already here? Well, many turn to the eugenics movement as a means of preserving the purity and genetic superiority of the white race. Enter Carrie Buck, a poor 17-year-old girl who had been raped by her foster mother's nephew and became pregnant. Rather than help her, her foster family decided to have her declared mentally ill and confine her to the Virginia State Colony for Epileptics and the Feeble-Minded. She was the first person in Virginia to be eugenically sterilized. Eight Supreme Court justices, led by Chief Justice William Howard Taft, sided with Virginia in their right to sterilize Carrie Buck and others like her. After all, these people were just going to fall into poverty and crime anyway, right? In the case of Carrie Buck, Oliver Wendell Holmes wrote that three generations of imbeciles are enough. 
government workers went door to door posing as census workers. They interviewed people, disabled minorities, especially poor African-American women, lower class women, alcoholics and drug users, women who transgressed sexual norms, etc. And if they found them wanting, they would have the procedure done later when they were at the hospital for something else in time. But the patients were ever told. But in some cases, women were abducted in the middle of the night, drugged and sterilized in state-funded hospitals. The Supreme Court's decision resulted in 60 to 70,000 sterilizations of Americans considered unfit to reproduce. From 1909 to 1979, around 20,000 sterilizations occurred in California's state mental institutions. Between 25% and 50% of all Native American women were sterilized between 1970 and 1976. You didn't mishear me. This was happening throughout the 1970s. In the state of Virginia alone, one out of every 453 women were forcibly sterilized against their will by the federal government. Carrie Buck never saw her baby after she gave birth, and she never had a family, despite desperately wanting one. Remember this asshole? He praised the 1924 Immigration Act in Mein Kampf, and at the Nuremberg trials after World War II, lawyers for German scientists cited the U.S. Supreme Court's opinion in Carrie Buck's case in their defense. Yeah, that's about it. But just wanted to show, yeah, it was the United States that served as direct inspiration for the Nazis' eugenics program. Oh, and on top of that, um, we got it from the UK. Oh, I didn't uh, know eugenics, that. Yeah, the eugenics, again, the idea of eugenics, it's a Greek word, it's ancient. This idea of selective breeding of humanity uh, is a, it's actually a very older, but it really got in vogue in the 1800s in Europe. Uh, and the UK is the one who started it. They were like, oh, this is, this is how we're going to cure mental illness. Um, we're just going to start stabilizing and, or sterilizing anyone who's developmentally disabled. That, that's a good thing to do. And they started doing it, and then it caught on in the U.S. and Canada and a lot of the Western world. In fact, it's actually a huge history of it before the Nazis ever came around, like right at the turn of the century, like right as the 20th century starts, early you know, 1900s. Um, there's a big push of it in South America and Central America. Uh, and in fact, Mexico um, has been proud of its eugenics history, not in terms of uh, sterilizing people, but through encouraged breeding of native people and, and lighter skinned people. That's actually why they call themselves the mestizo race. Um, it was, it was federal. It was, this, I'm not, this isn't like a, a hyperbolic, you know, uh, my tinfoil hat. Like, no, this is this, this federal policy was they would give rebates and cash prizes to light-skinned um, Spanish heritage Mexicans who would marry um, native Mexicans and start creating a lighter-skinned race in Mexico. This was around the world um, at that time. And, yeah, the U.S. especially had it at Ellis Island. Um, anyone immigrating, there's a huge history of major discrimination at Ellis Island, and it was to keep the infirm and the crippled out of the country. But at the end, I mean, first of all, that's fucked up. But at the end of the day, it was up to the subjective will of the person doing it. So maybe they didn't like your nose or the color of your skin mm -hmm. or the sound of your last name or whatever. You'd be considered unfit. Nope, you go back. Time to go back home and die. That was the policy. And so I actually didn't know that Hitler had a huge hard-on for American eugenics, but it doesn't fucking surprise me. Yeah, well, and just the, the other piece of that, and the reason that there was this rebirth of the eugenics movement at that time is because people were just starting to read and understand Charles Darwin 
in his theory of evolution. And so once they kind of, that's, unfortunately, that's where races go with a theory of evolution once they understand it and accept it enough. Yeah. And I talked about in my, in my last podcast, how people took Darwin's theory because he never actually said survival of the fittest. That was Herbert Spencer. And Herbert Spencer co-opted survival of the fittest out of Darwin's theory so that he could defend unfettered capitalism and unfettered uh, inequality that persisted across the country. Mm-hmm. So it's really like we can hoard all of these resources and it's okay just because we're the survival of the fittest. We're the fittest of the bunch. Well, and that idea of survival of the fittest is always accredited to Darwin, but it's not even what he was going for. No, he was, he, was he believed in mutual aid. common ancestry. Yeah, and he was like, hey, these finches, I think, all came from the same place is where he was going with that. Everyone was like, oh, so only the white finches are good. Got it. <laughs> Darwin would have been friends with Kropotkin. Absolutely. Dar- Darwin was, you know, and it's, again, people will defend and say, well, Darwin was religious. And it's like, well... Darwin didn't want his funding cut, so he said he was religious. Yeah, and who wasn't back then? Like, stop. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, if you wanted to be funded by the Royal Academy of Sciences, you sure as shit didn't go against the church. That's for one thing. Right. right. So Americans sympathized with the Nazis in the 1930s, and White, who I mentioned before, the historian, notes that in the early, in early 1930, eugenicists in America welcomed Nazi ideas about racial purity and republished their propaganda gleefully. Charles Lindbergh, who we mentioned earlier in the episode, nice, the aviation pilot, received a swastika medal from the Nazi party in 1938 and in 1941. And Lindbergh testified before the Congress's House Foreign Affairs Committee um, in 1941 that the United States should negotiate with Adolf Hitler and sign a neutrality pact. Mm-hmm. What the fuck? Again, it's one of those funny things where... You know, after 1945, there were no Nazis anymore. But boy, let me tell you, before 1938, there was a ton of them. And they were all over the world. Nazis were popular. They were fashionable. They were well-to-do. They were the new hip kid in school. Like, everyone wanted to hang out with the fucking Nazis. It was, it was, this, it was this craze that literally swept the Western world, no pun intended. Um, and it wasn't just... Sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. No, go ahead, man. I was going to say, I should mention, too, that there was actually a student resistance uh, to the war as well, because students were afraid that they were going to be the first in line to have to fight the war. So they were very much in um, support of isolationism, but for very different reasons than Charles Lindbergh. Well, look at the White, it's the White Rose Society. Uh, they were all over Germany and the U.S. where they, the White Rose Society were anti-Nazi and they would fight the brown shirts. Now, that's a symbol that talk about being co-opted by liberals, that, you know, the Democratic Socialists of America, whatever that, whatever that group of libs is, um, they've taken over that White Rose logo, which pisses me off. Because um, no one's the first to back down and hug it out with the Nazis faster than the DSA. Um Sorry, and I just pissed off half your followers. But the point <laughs> I, I have I have some friends in the DSA, but uh... not a fan. It, it's liberalism. It's just liberalism with socialist sprinkles. That's the best you can give them. Um, and again, don't get me wrong; they're not fascists. Like I will break bread with a democratic socialist long before I'll break bread with you know someone in moderate or right wing. They're definitely left wing. Mm-hmm. They're just real close to the center on the left wing, and. Again, and I can only go with, this is anecdotal, but I do a lot of 
public protesting. I do a lot of social action. Um, and every time the DSA shows up, it's all photo ops. And, and there's no meat to the potatoes ever. They, there's no, there's no, there's no praxis. Um, I, I, I would say that it's, that's probably, you know, location specific. I've seen a lot yeah. of really Yeah, there definitely from- are better chapters than others. Yeah. And again, this is my personal experience. So it is quite possible that somewhere on the East Coast or somewhere else, there's some DSA who are some fucking down dudes. That is absolutely possible. Um, I can just give you the what I have seen here in the Southern California region. There certainly um, are a lot of libs involved in it. I, I will yeah. give you that, Chris. There's a lot of Biden flags at a DSA rally. Well, it seems like it, you know if someone's looking for clout as a leftist and, and they don't fully understand it, then I could definitely see them gravitating towards DSA. You know, Absolutely. As, like, Yeah, yeah, and a lot of, like, introductory lefties, like, people that just got into politics in the last couple of years, they think that the Democratic Party is the left. Right, they don't have an understanding for where the U.S. falls on on the worldwide political spectrum, absolutely. You can Google this. The DSA stole money this year. Uh, They stole donations from Streetwatch L.A. Um, And it's well-documented. Streetwatch L.A. is trying to file a suit. Um, they basically took a whole bunch of donations that were supposed to go to help homeless people and basically stole them and said, our treasurer decided you don't get to disperse them and just kept them. And they've just literally stolen tens of thousands of dollars. Yeah, that's um, not a very socialist thing to do. No, because no, the, the, the dem- democratic socialism isn't socialism. It's mm-hmm. left of liberalism. And I'll yeah. give you that. And there's again, the democratic socialists are not my enemy. I'm a communist. They're not my enemy. We have things in common. Democratic socialists want to see food get put into people's mouths. They want to see workers' rights protected. They want to see health care for all. Like, the democratic socialists have fucking noble goals, and they are pro-worker. And for that, I'll say we're on the same side. Um, But that's as far as it goes because, unfortunately, they want reform. They want to change the system from within. And I don't believe that a capitalist oligarch fascist nightmare can be restored from within. Well, you, you can make an argument for improving material conditions in the here and now. And True. You know, for instance, uh, I did an episode with some members of Central Connecticut DSA, and, and they are busting their asses to form tenant unions. And so that's something that I 100% get behind because you get tenants in a union and they're all of a sudden in a different place than they were before. Oh, yeah. Tenant um, unions are where it's at. I certainly support that. <clears throat> but um, getting back to this, like Lindbergh is not at all an isolated case in terms of sympathizing with Nazis. Like you had cases where, you know, JFK's dad was uh, the ambassador to the UK at this time, like right in the lead up to World War II. And he writes, you know, Cable's home saying things like the Jews are bringing this upon themselves. And like, I can understand where the Nazis are coming from with their you know, anti-Semitism. It's like, whoa, you know, but that yeah. it was not it was not rare. For, for prominent people in the U.S. to have that position. Yeah, and again, let's also remember, the King of England was a Nazi sympathizer. Right. Edward. Edward was a Nazi sympathizer, and, and there's all kinds of documents to show that uh, Scotland Yard was, was making some plans about him. He wasn't given any intel. They were talking about getting rid of him. Like, there was some serious problems, and then he abdicated. You know, and Elizabeth's father took over. George, I think. It's George, isn't it? Was the king in World War II? Yeah. Um, and he was very anti-Nazi. Um, but yeah, Edward was a full-on traitor, um, and was—I mean, it, it went all the way up to the British and the Greeks too. The Greeks were big fascists, you know. So this was not this idea that this was a German problem. No, the Germans just went ham on it. This was a right. global problem. 
<laughs> yeah, matter of fact, on February 20th, 1939, there was a massive Nazi rally that was held at Madison Square Garden yep. in, in New York City. And so that proves that America's ties to the Nazis um, <clears throat> go back even further than that. And what's interesting about this entire rally is it was centered around a theme of George Washington, who's, of course, a prominent founding father of America. And it was titled as a pro-Americanism rally. That's in quotes. Um, and the stage at the event, according to historians, featured a portrait of George Washington with swastikas on each side. Washington, of course, was a slave owner, and the organizer of the event, George Bund, opened the rally by stating, quote, if George Washington were alive today, he would be friends with Adolf Hitler, end quote. <laughs> um, I, I should note this, however, though, outside of Madison Square Garden, there were large demonstrations held throughout New York City by prominent members in the Jewish community against the Nazis, and there were really badass signs like smash anti-Semitism and drive the Nazis out of New York. So there definitely were people that resisted uh, the popularity of the Nazis fiercely as well. So I don't want to leave that out. But, you know, oh. just the, the idea or the mental image of 20,000 people, you know, filing into Madison Square Garden for that rally just gives you a pit in your stomach. And this wasn't just there. I mean, look at Murphy Ranch, you know, here, here on the West Coast in California. If you look at Murphy Ranch... It was in the Santa Monica Mountains. It's a ranch right here in the L.A. area that was meant to be a Nazi operations base. I wasn't it was, familiar. Yeah, it's, it's, it was built by um, – hold on. Let me look it up. Hold on. It was, it's right here. Yeah, Winona and Norman Stevens, um, you know, who were sympathizers of the anti-Semitic white supremacist Silver Legion of America. Um, we had a, a Nazi sympathizer base here in Los Angeles. It was meant to literally be a place for the American Nazis to go once the Nazis invaded. It was supposed to be a safe house for Nazi sympathizers once the Nazis won the war and came here. Um, it's all over the place. There's stuff in, in hell right in between Chatsworth and Simi Valley where we are. There's stuff by the Manson Caves. There's a bunch of Nazi stuff. If you go to Pasadena, um, there's swastikas in the light posts because they were built during the 30s, the 20s and 30s, and that was in fashion. And it was supposed to be wow. a whites-only town. Wow. That's yeah, crazy. Chris, um, I heard today that – I haven't read the book, of course, but there's an author that wrote a book about uh, the Nazi influence in Los Angeles. And it's mm -hmm. called Adolf Hitler in Los Angeles. And yeah, the, it's supposed to be fascinating, probably detailing everything that you're talking about. Yeah, again, and it's still standing. You can go see Murphy Ranch now. It's still around. It's covered in graffiti and all kinds of stuff. But it was literally gates and you know concrete swastikas, and it, you can still see it. Again, go to Pasadena. You can still see the swastikas and the light poles. They're still there. That's horrifying. Um, you got to remember, man, this was less than 100 years ago. Mm -hmm. This is a blip in history. You know, Hadrian's Wall is still standing in Scotland. That's from the Roman era. Like, yeah, we're not going to get rid of this shit. It's only like two right or now. three generations ago. No, no, Hadrian's Wall was was several thousand years ago. No, no, no. I'm talking about like the 1930s. Oh yeah, two generations ago. My grandfather fought in World War II. That's why I always say that hit Nazis is a family tradition in my house. You know, <laughs> <laughs> uh, my, my my grandfather was on D-Day. Whoa, that's crazy. So it, it, this was this is not that long ago at all. There are still several Holocaust survivors. Mm -hmm. Right alive in the world. They're still around. Mm -hmm. well, yeah, while we're on the topic of World War II, the U.S. 
of course, joined World War II extremely late. And like I said, there was a lot of pressure from inside the country to stay out of the war, especially like Charles Lindbergh. Um, and it was really just the driving factor of Pearl Harbor that got us into the war. Um, we, we essentially had to at that point. And then we, of course, declared war on Japan and then subsequently Nazi Germany, you know, because they were or allies with each other. But, like, it was out of great reluctance that America entered this war. <clears throat> yeah, Congress didn't want to go. Well, I mean, there are some, some mitigating factors there. Like, we were, this was on the heels of World War I, which was the first, like, True. just absolutely brutal. Most French devastating warfare. war the world had ever seen. Conflict, time, yeah. yeah. My, my great-grandfather was shell-shocked and actually abandoned his family because he didn't know how to deal with his PTSD. Um, and, you know, then you've also you, – you've got a number of factors in there, but you, you're right. It was that. We needed a push to get involved. Well, and remember, you couldn't hop on a 10-hour flight and go to Europe back then. That didn't exist. If you wanted to go to Europe, right. you hopped on a, on a week-long steamer boat. That was considered a whole different planet. And so you had to convince Americans to go have their sons die in some faraway land for a war that who gives a shit about, you know, mm -hmm. again, for Europe, this was a big deal, but for America, America was like, there was no skin in the game for the United States. And whereas again, I definitely agree with, no, no, it's worth it to end fascism. But on the other hand, that's, that's, a, that's an easy position to take in the 21st century. You have to look at the time and imagine being in 1930s United States where, yeah, yeah there's this dickhead over in Germany who's killing a bunch of people and the British are really pissed about it. I don't well, want to die for that. People didn't know, you know, how much was really happening in, in regards to the Holocaust. There was yeah. not widespread knowledge of the death camps at that point yeah. as well. But top yeah. brass knew, you know, Churchill and and, and, right. and Roosevelt knew, but the American public, even they had the British yeah. public, the French public, and the Russians, most of them didn't know. Like the the death camps were own were a military secret. People did not know about them. Mm -hmm. It was yeah, it was top people in the U.S. military. Uh, we were going to talk about Operation Paperclip. Maybe we can do that right now. Oh, I'd love to. <laughs> so, uh, Chris, you want to just break down what Operation Paperclip was for the listeners? <laughs> so I know I what mean, it uh, is. <laughs> yeah, but Operation Paperclip was this is this amazing this amazing thing that the United States loves to just sweep under the rug, right? Um, and Operation Paperclip was where after the war ended, because um, you got to remember that the United States and Russia were were literally in a race to Berlin. Right. We, you know, we talk about us winning the war. Really, the Russians technically won it because they got through Berlin first. That's why the picture of the, the, the Reichstag has a communist on it waving a red flag. And a, yeah, and like a, I'm a no fan of the Soviet Union, but no denying they lost over 20 million people in that war. I'm a big fan of the first couple of years of the Soviet Union. That's about it. <laughs> um, but, yeah, no, they were not good dudes at all, but they lost a lot of people. And again, that's. That's kind of part of the problem with the Soviet Union is Stalin was real big into who gives a shit about my people, send them off to die. That's, you know, he, he literally put his people through a meat grinder. Um, but that's a whole different podcast on why Stalin sucks. We could talk about that for days. <laughs> um, but, yeah, the, the, the Russians and the Americans were racing to get to the heart of Berlin. And once they got in there, one of the first orders of business was to get those scientists. Because you got to remember, the Germans were ahead of everyone in terms of science. Um, Late in the war, they invented the jet fighter. 
when mm-hmm. we were going into Berlin, they were all the all the fighter, the American and British fighters were getting creamed by all, and they had no idea what the fuck they were. Right, they were okay. just these fighter planes flying by at ten times the speed, machine gunning mm-hmm. us and getting out of range before anybody can touch them. They were just slaughtering them. They just didn't have enough. They were developed too late in the war. They couldn't get off the ground. They didn't have enough pilots. Like it was just too little, too late. But the Germans invented jet fighters their submarines were still the best um they were holding their own against russian tanks and they were sending rockets and this is where paperclip comes in they were sending rockets to england now no one was rocketing germany because we didn't have the technology germans were able to launch rockets from germany not france and just across that little strain to england they were launching them from fucking berlin the -hmm. center of germany and pin and just just perfectly striking london you know, they were nailing major British cities with rockets. And again, that now doesn't seem like that amazing. But imagine doing that without satellite tracking. Right. You know? the, other, the other piece of that is like the, the way that the Londoners knew that there was an attack coming was that they'd see the bombers flying overhead. So all of a sudden you got these rockets flying in and, and you know, that's just causing absolute so mayhem. My grandmother lived uh, in England during the war. Whoa. Uh, yeah, my grandparents got together after the war. My grandmother came here looking for work, and my, my grandfather was a vet who owned a, uh, a textile mill with his brother, and that's how they got together. Um, but, yeah, uh, my grandmother was a firefighter um, in London during the war, and she, they called them buzz bombs because when the V-2 rockets would come over, they made this sound. They had this low drone because they were long-range rockets, so they were they were burning low on fuel. And they, when they came over England, they would make this sound. She'd always say it was haunting, was it was this haunting sound from the air as this rocket that was sputtering almost out of fuel because that's how they did it was they're like what's the wind what's the conditions how much gas do we put in the rocket and then send it off and when it runs out of gas it should be right over the city and that's how they did it was they just made sure it ran out of fuel right where it was supposed to drop Mm -hmm. and so this rocket would come overhead and then just drop out of the sky and kill everyone and and then she would go out and fight the fires you know that's what they did but so the germans again it sounds low tech Gotta remember, we got into space on calculators, man. <laughs> you know, we were right. shooting guys with not much better technology to the moon. And so the Germans were the only ones who had scientists doing this, who had these rocket guys. We didn't have anything like that, but we sure as shit knew this was the future. That military rockets going into space, we were developing a nuke, launching a nuke would be really nice to have on a big rocket. And so, and the Russians knew this too. They were also developing a nuke and they were also interested in rockets, right? And jet fighters and all this shit. And so we literally started grabbing scientists, both the Russians and the Americans. And the Russians and Americans started going, hey, we won't kill you. We will absolve you of all your shitty Nazi crimes. And, uh, you know, we'll give you a bunch of blow and, and some whatever you want. We'll put you up in a nice lab and just, uh, you know, build rockets. And, and we'll, went, okay, it sounds like a good idea. I'll come over, sure. <laughs> and and we'll, rehabilit- we'll rehabilitate your image, too, right? This is the opportunity for them to kind of rejoin the world science community. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I actually got banned um, for, uh, from a, 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 an Instagram NASA fan group because I again I'm I'm an amateur astronomer I love it <laughs> and all of a sudden they started um, they started holding up what's his name um, Warner von Braun yeah von Braun thank you they started holding up von Braun is look von Braun invented the the, the Saturn rocket he was the head of NASA yeah and I was like um he was a Nazi and they were like well we can celebrate people's achievements without going into their past and I was like whoa. This this isn't grandma who had a drinking problem. This guy was a Nazi. <laughs> yeah, like a really bad one. 
Yeah, and he became the head of NASA, and he became the head of our rocket program because we were trying to beat the, the Soviets to the moon. And that's Operation Paperclip. We went and grabbed some people who were responsible for insane death counts and insane amounts of carnage on the side of evil. And we really wanted their expertise, and so we completely wiped their crimes clean and then hired them and gave them money and fame. Yeah, no, that's a, it's incredible. Really good breakdown, Chris. Thank you. Um, so I guess like the big question is whenever you talk about Operation Paperclip, you frequently hear people say, oh, well, we had to because the Russians would have grabbed the rest of the scientists, too. So I guess my question is, how do you respond to that criticism? Because it's obviously a massive ethical dilemma. Do you think that it was necessary? Not at all. Um, science is science. And science is true no matter who does it. Um, I'm sorry. The United States had Oppenheimer, you know. Uh, the Russians were building tanks. We were splitting the fucking atom. Still had Einstein. Um, yeah, we still had Einstein. Like, so this idea that like there was no other way around it. We had to get these guys, and if we didn't, the Russians would have them. First of all, so what? Like, I'm sorry. You want to talk shit about the Soviet Union? I'll happily do it. It was not a good place, but uh, they didn't vaporize two cities full of women and children with their nukes. We did, and so I can't imagine a worse nation in the world to have scientists than the United States. And I'm sorry, again, we had Oppenheimer. Like, we were on the cutting edge of science as well. We didn't need German scientists. Um, the only reason we needed them was to win a dick measuring contest. Um, so, no, yeah. we should have just put them up against the fucking wall. I agree. So, Pat, uh, you just tuned back in. I asked Chris if he thought that the United States, if the United States acquisition of Nazi scientists, Operation Paperclip, was necessary because you frequently hear people say, well, if we didn't take the scientists, the Russians would have grabbed all of them. Well, no, he, Chris made great points on that. And the other piece of that is, like, it, regardless of whether it's necessary for anything, like, at, at the end of the day, you're rehabilitating the Nazis. image of Nazis. Like, Enemies. There, has, there has to be some consequence for massacring millions of Jewish people. Sorry. Yeah, <laughs> yeah completely agree. Again, there, there's a very interesting um, point to be made where uh, – bear with me one second. I'm actually going to Google this. Hold on. Yeah, no worries. Because um, I don't want to get this wrong. Uh, Nuremberg justice. There's, there's a very good point to be made that during the Nuremberg trials, who was it that said that? Um, oh, it was, it was Herman Goering. You know, again, one of the top Nazis. It was a Goering. I couldn't remember who actually said it. Um, uh, but Herman Goering said that he was getting what's called victor's justice. And his point was that regardless of what we did, so did you. And how come we're the only ones up here? And it's a fair point because, man, you think the Nazis did some messed up stuff in their medical experiments? You should see what the Japanese were up to. Oh, yeah. But they surrendered, and, and we let them go. And we wanted to rehabilitate their culture, and the Russians had no, no stake there, so it was fine. We just swept that under the rug. We didn't need a war crimes trial. Ma McNamara, right, he, he is the mastermind of the Pacific War, and he firebombed Tokyo. That is a war crime. The United States military recognized that, oh, by the way, most of Tokyo is made of dry wood. We're going to burn it down. Yeah, what you say, Josh? I was going to say, a lot of people... Uh, point out, you know, rightfully that the atomic bombs are dropped on Nagasaki and Hiroshima, but the reason those were not major Japanese cities. The reason that the bombs were dropped on those cities is because the United States had already leveled Tokyo and all the other major Japanese cities. 
Yeah, not even leveled. Burned them down. And I, when I say burn, I mean, we were literally launching napalm. Firebombing people. Imagine you live in a box of matches and someone drops a Molotov cocktail on top of you is what we did. We shot napalm and burned children alive. And so this idea that, well, invading Japan would have cost more lives. Okay, so if we're going to talk about, sure, if you're just going to send a bunch of Marines Iwo Jima style, you know, if yeah, sure, if you want to go the Stalin plan and just send a meat wall of innocent people to go die, I guess technically maybe. But first of all, that's a stupid tactic that no one would do. Mm-hmm. And number two, they're an island. You wouldn't need to. You could just blockade them until they surrender. There's no need to invade Tokyo or Japan. Like, once you smash their navy and their air force, they're just an island. Surround them. They're done. I mean, And that's why they got into the war. We don't like talking about that. Japan entered the war because we oil blockaded them. Yeah. Had we not stolen their resources, they wouldn't have even been in World War II. They didn't give a shit about the Germans. They aligned with them because we were fucking them. But anyway, that's all of the story. And this might, this might be a conspiracy, too, but I've heard some, at least there's some degree of evidence that the U.S. government knew that an attack was coming from Japan. Uh, here's the thing. Who knows what, you know, what the White House knows, but Freedom Information has unearthed a lot of stuff, and there was no paper trail that says Roosevelt knew this, Um, and I don't believe the Japanese were planning on anything like that. What happened was Roosevelt wanted them to attack, and so he put the entire Navy, which was a derelict, defunct Navy, by the way. Our Navy ships were garbage at this time. This was a way to not only get us into the war, but to rebuild our Navy. And so he puts a bunch of, I mean, these were fucking wood aircraft carriers, like wooden decks and shit. We pushed them out to Pearl Harbor right at the edge of where the Japanese can reach us. We gave them a tempting target. Um, I definitely think, I don't think anyone knew it was coming. I think Roosevelt was definitely hoping. Um, Interesting perspective. the big takeaway, though, is that the Japanese were getting ready to surrender. They already wanted to surrender. They were already starting to engage in talks with the Russians. The second bomb certainly wasn't necessary. That was definitely just to flex America's muscles. None of them were. The second, right. the second bomb wasn't to flex muscles. Here's, here's, here's what's fucked up. is that's, that's not good, but it's a defendable foreign policy. You can almost say that there can be foreign policy to establish a threat around the world. No, no, it's way more sociopathic and darker than that. The reason why the bombs were called Fat Man and Little Boy is because they're two different fission devices. They were two different delivery devices, and we had to test them. Mm-hmm. Launching one tells you that one works, but how did we know the other one works? And so we had to test out both bombs and see what they would do to a city. That yeah, is then, literally and, the reason we did two. In the 1950s, that was a big part of the tourism industry in Las Vegas, was you could come out to the desert and you can watch them test bombs. Yeah. I actually would have fucking loved that shit. Um, <laughs> but you gotta we, us and the British tested them on our own people. We actually put soldiers in trenches and boats and nuked them. Um, to see how far away they could be from the bomb and still be what able about, to walk. What about and Bikini see. Atoll? We just, no, yeah, bikini. Right. We just hey, moved hey. an entire, <laughs> yeah. we just moved an entire country of people. We just said, okay, you can't live here anymore. I mean, in our defense, they weren't white, so <laughs> they don't have their land. Yeah, it makes it a whole lot easier. If you're not white, <sighs> it's really easy for the Americans to not care about your uh, your homeland. But yeah, we nuked and vaporized two cities full of civilians. So even if you want to go with there was no way but invading, at least that would have been the deaths of soldiers. We vaporized civilians. 
and, and yeah. burned down old people and children and farmers. Like, what the fuck? And for a nation that was about to surrender anyway. But we couldn't mm-hmm. have them peacefully surrender to the Russians. The Russians were to be to Berlin. We had to nuke them to show that we were the boss. It was it was a dick measuring contest of the darkest method. Absolutely. Um, so I wanted to uh, focus specifically on Germany right now and, and their education system, how they teach their Nazi past, and then kind of compare it to how the United States teaches its racist past. So in Germany, for years after the Second World War, discussing Nazism in Germany – was very taboo. People didn't want to talk about it. Even people that didn't have anything to do with the Nazi regime, they just, it wasn't something that was discussed. Parents and grandparents who lived during the Third Reich, they were not asked uncomfortable questions by their, by their children and by their grandchildren because this was just seen as rude and disrespectful. But in 1959, there was a dramatic wake-up call that happened. There was a string of anti-Semitic vandalism that took place across major German cities. And there were like swastikas and very anti-Semitic symbols everywhere. And this really frightened people. There was a dramatic wake-up call that happened for the German people in 1959. A string of anti-Semitic vandalism broke out in major German cities. And so the German people were frightened by this. And it led to a change in consciousness, ultimately culminating with a social movement called the 1968 Movement, which was a group of German college students who protested the traditionalist attitude that had existed previously in Germany. And these college students took a lot of inspiration from the Vietnam, the Vietnam War protests in America. So there's a direct connection right there between the German people and the American people. And so the Germans during this movement embraced uh, left-wing themes such as communal living and sexual liberation. In the end, the movement kind of petered out and lost some momentum, but it did leave a lasting impact within the German people and a massive shift in consciousness did ultimately ensue. And Besides just opening up dialogue about Germany's past, the students also helped popularize and energize many left-wing causes that you see in Germany today. And Anna Daly, who's the author of Explained, What Sparked the Protest Culture of Modern Germany, uh, says, quote, here, the students helped solidify a protest culture in Germany. I thought that was all really interesting that they took inspiration from the anti-war movement that existed in America. Well, and I think what grows out of that is, is that nowadays you'll find that Germans are very well versed in their history. You know, they don't sweep it under the rug. They have honest conversations about it, but they don't waste time with the both, both sides bullshit that you'll mm-hmm. find in the U.S. where you'll try to find people explaining away uh, you know, saying that the the uh, Confederacy was about states' rights, right? You know, states' rights to do what? To own slaves, but they left it at states' rights. You know, that kind of thing just didn't happen. There was no muddying of the waters after this point. And they they made, you know, one point that really sticks with me is that German students not only have a really great, you know, solid education in their their country's darkest moments, but they've also for the most part, just about every German student of secondary school has visited a concentration camp, mm-hmm. which have, have all been, most have been turned into really well-done museums that are respectful, but super accurate. You know, these are museums that are staffed by people with, with master's degrees in history who really know what they're talking about and can really 
uh, you know, make it so that the visitor fully understands what happened at, at those concentration camps. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. We're going to say something, Chris? Oh, yeah. I'll say, uh, Pat took the words out of my mouth. I, I couldn't agree more. That Yeah, you're right. I think a big part of that is that Germans, Germans aren't afraid of their own history and afraid to be honest about it. And like you said, like kids are raised learning about the Holocaust. Um, and I think... I think there's two things that make this why it's so different. I think that is number one. I think uh, Pat's correct. I think education from a young age of, that is honest um, is vital. The other thing is that we never had a truth and reconciliation. Um, and what I mean by that is the Germans had that. The Germans not only were had their entire state smashed, um, they had their dirty laundry hung out on the world stage. They had Nuremberg trials. We have video of concentration camps. Right. And this was portrayed at their shame at the generation that did it. And that's the thing is it wasn't 100 years later. It was at the time. Several years later, we had a trial where we put their entire culture on trial mm-hmm. and showed how it was trash. And I think that fucking humbles you. And look at South Africa. We have apartheid. What does Nelson Mandela do? Truth and reconciliation, right? He, he says, we're going to expose everything that happened. And if you did awful, murderous, rapey shit, we are actually not going to kill you if you come forward and tell us fucking everything. Because that's what's needed for the soul of the nation. We need to reconcile this. The United States, we didn't have that. When Sherman goes through the South and burns it down... Which, by the way, Sherman, I love that guy. He's fucking insane. But like, <laughs> you know, I love Sherman because he had a, he had a, you know, he had a psychotic break, and then he comes back because the war is getting lost. And one day, it's like you can tell just Sherman woke up out of a tent, and someone was telling him more atrocities being done in Atlanta, and he's like, you know what? <laughs> but, um, but besides Sherman burning Atlanta, we had nothing after after the Civil War. Plantations were given right back to their owners. Well, and I think that comes with with Lincoln being assassinated and Johnson taking over and having his his personal history of being oh, yeah. a southerner. Johnson and, and was just, a simp for the South, yeah. Right, absolutely. Just handing that land back. Like I think Lincoln had a bit of a plan on how he was going to go about this. I, don't, I, don't, I disagree. Well, I'm not sure if it was truth and reconciliation, like you say. I yeah. don't think it was the public trials. A great point, but I, I do think it would have been a different situation with a little bit more account- accountability. Uh, that, but, that I agree. Maybe that's wishful thinking. I know. I think you're right. I think Reconstruction would have looked differently had Lincoln survived. I think it wouldn't have been abandoned after what five years or whatever. Right. I, I think Reconstruction would have been more successful. But even Lincoln didn't. Lincoln had no interest in Black liberation. Lincoln had no interest in an end to Southern culture. Lincoln only cared about the preservation of the Union. And again, right. I think I think you're right. I think he would have done a hell of a different job, better one than, than Johnson ever did. But Lincoln wasn't here for the good of the people. Lincoln was here for the good of the state. And he, he loved the state. And that's all he cared about. Yeah. And we didn't hang these guys. We didn't put a trial out there and saying, hey, by the way, I have accounts from the people that you owned. And here's the five women you raped. And here's the 17 people you murdered. And here's the 86 people you tortured and people you enslaved like, and you, people you sold and bought like cargo. Like, had that happened and we brought these guys and said, here's the crimes against humanity you've done. Would you like to say anything before we hang you publicly and then distribute your land to farmers and workers and the people you enslaved? Had that been done? Had we had a Nuremberg trial and a redisbursement of land and wealth? I think we would be looking a lot more like Germany, but because we didn't do that and we let the plantation masters keep their land and keep their slaves, and devise a new system of slavery. Yeah, and, we, 
you can't wave a Nazi flag in Germany. You go to fucking jail for that. Yeah. Shit. Here you can wave a Confederate flag, and that's the difference. Yeah, and in 1968, you talk about this German movement. What did we have in the late 60s? That's when we had the retooling of the Klan and the Confederate flag as an anti-civil rights monument. Chris, yeah, I go, agreed. It even goes deeper than that because what? Until like a year or two ago, there were still Confederate flags on government property. Yeah, right. I think it was Mississippi, right? Was the last one that just went down? Yeah, and yeah, they that, took that down like last year. Yeah, right. South Carolina in recent history it took theirs down as well. And it was yeah. because they were pressured and not because they wanted to. Oh, right. Absolutely. You got, you got Trump sitting here crying about taking Confederate generals' names off of military bases, even though the Pentagon wants that to happen. Right. <laughs> yeah, one of, the, one of the themes that I mentioned earlier was anti-intellectualism that exists within fascism. And uh, interestingly enough, I was doing research before um, on, like, airports and stuff, and they're super, like, mundane, innocuous things. But it's deeper than that because – in America, a lot of the airports are named after, like, celebrities and presidents, you know, people that shouldn't necessarily be, like, looked upon the public. In Europe, a lot of the airports are named after authors and poets and public intellectuals. And I just think that says a lot about ch a change in society's focus, you know? Yeah, we got the John Wayne Airport in Orange County. Yeah, he was exactly who I was thinking of. <laughs> this is the guy who publicly called the Japanese people, and I quote, Tojo's bug-eyed monkeys. <laughs> Big fan of him. Yeah, John Wayne is a racist fuckhead. Um, so I guess uh, let's talk about Germany uh, with regards to patriotism and nationalism. So like you said, Chris, uh, waving the Nazi flag is illegal. But in Germany, waving the German flag outside of major sporting events like the World Cup, that's seen as a taboo. Like being, as it should. Yeah, being over-the-top patriotic is weird in Germany. And I, I agree with that, too. I wish that was the, the policy in the United States because like they look at our national anthem that you have to sing that before you go to school as psychotic, rightfully so. There's actually this uh, this meme that was going around on Imager that was getting viral, and I loved it. And they were just pictures of U.S. patriotism calling them North Korea. And it was like there was a picture of, like, you know, like a, the Super Bowl where the flag takes up the entire field. And it's like in North Korea, you have to stand and sing the magical flag song before a sporting event happens. How weird is the authoritarianism? And in, you know, in America, the police can do whatever they want or in North Korea. And there was another one like had kids showing the Pledge of Allegiance, their hands over their heart. It's like in North Korea, children are forced to stand and salute a flag before class even starts every day. Yeah. Only fascist countries would do that. Agreed. <laughs> <laughs> no, in, in Jordan, the the nationalism piece and the waving of the flag and all that, you know, my, my wife, I was just telling you before we started recording, went to, did all of her undergrad at St. Andrews in Scotland, and she said throughout Europe that that's the case, where it's just so weird and, and just like in bad taste to, to be so upfront about your your flag. And her point is like, we know where you are. Like, why are you flying the, the U.S. flag? We We know where we are. We know where you are. We're in the U.S. Like, what are you doing right now? Right. Can you imagine if you went to the grocery store and there was flags everywhere for that grocery store and every day at opening, they all stood around and put their hands over their heart and pledged allegiance to the Walmart symbol. And like, can you, can you even fucking imagine that? Like, that's the level of insanity. I read this. This article. That was a crazy video, dude. <laughs> there were, I read this article from a BBC reporter and he literally just wrote like, 
I've been in America for five years and people always ask me, what's the difference? And he listed out like, here's the weird things. He said, Americans are really friendly. He's like, you hear them coming a mile away. Americans are very loud. They're very opinionated. They're very emotional. And he's like, and all I can say is what's with all the goddamn flags everywhere. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Fourth no, of that's... July makes sense. I don't know yeah, why it does. we have them any other time. Mm-hmm. No reason to have flags constantly in any other reason. I mean, it's just weird. Um, so to be clear, though, you know, we're not saying the Germans aren't proud of their country, obviously. They're, they're just, like, much less loud and emotional about their love for their country. Um, in addition, when we're talking about the armed forces in Germany, they're not nearly as celebrated as the American armed forces are. They're, they're a matter of fact, oftentimes ridiculed in Germany. Which, you know, would be a lot nicer if we saw more of that in the U.S. <laughs> well, Einstein is the one who said there's no lower form of life than those who strap on boots and march around happily saluting a flag. That's a beautiful quote. Man, oh. he was so base. Just, I know, just was. Famous, famous socialist. Oh, he's great. Hated the military, hated Nazis, banged his cousin. He was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> um... um. So in Germany, when they're teaching students about their country's past, the conversation, of course, generally centers around the Holocaust, the systemic murder of over 6 million European Jews, and besides Jewish people, homosexuals were killed, Jehovah's Witnesses, gypsies, disabled people as well. And it's also uh, to be noted that after the war broke out, victim groups were expanded to in also include Soviet prisoners of war, Soviet citizens, and others. Any anybody that was a communist or a socialist was gassed, just thrown in a concentration camp. And I... You know, I'm taking this information from the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum. <clears throat> um, is there anything else that you guys want to say about German education and the way that it's carried out over there? I mean, just that point, right? So that, that it focuses, centers around the Holocaust, right? Mm -hmm. So, like, they're not sugarcoating it. Here in the U.S., you know, I'm a teacher. I teach history in Boston Public Schools. And, you know... I, I, I'd say most of my colleagues are kind of where I am now, where I, I will teach them the truth and I do not sugarcoat it. But that's rare, unfortunately, in the U.S., right? Like, yeah. I will teach them the evils of slavery and I will not, you know, I'm not going to gloss over details and I'm going to make it real for them and, and I'm going to be honest with them. But that's not the norm here, right? So there's so many places where they're just tiptoeing around the edges of slavery, tiptoeing around the edges of the brutality of the system. And, and unfortunately, like, we're, we're just missing the entire point of the exercise if we do that. Yeah, like, what was that new policy that they just implemented in Texas where teachers no longer have to say that the KKK were an immoral organization? Right, and they're banning, like, you know, works by Martin Luther King Jr. So it's like, what are you doing? In, right? in Virginia, they're A bringing pacifist. back book burning. Right, yeah, it's... It's just, it's sad, and it, it, it doesn't bode well for our future if we can't have honest discussions about our past. Yeah, I was if actually... I, if I can... Yeah, go sorry, ahead, go Chris. Ahead. Sorry about that. No, no, that. go ahead, man. Go, go. Uh, I was actually just going to ask you guys about critical race theory, because, you know, that's one of the, the cultural issues that the right is always talking about, which, of course, critical race theory is not being taught to children. Um, but they're, they're constantly saying that in public education, as watered down as history is, as little information as people have that they should have, they still say that children are being taught to hate their country. It's just beyond a joke to me. Like, how do you guys respond to that? I mean, I think it's funny that they think state-sponsored curriculum is teaching them to hate the state. <laughs> right? Right. And, and There's I think, a flag in every corner, right? 
And the accusation, I think also, you know, in addition to being ridiculous on its face, it shows that there's a complete misunderstanding of history as a social science, right? Historians and history teachers don't teach something as nebulous as hate for your country, right? That would be so subjective that it's something that doesn't even resemble studying history. But events that took place, regardless of whether they involved atrocities or not, if they're consequential to the history of a nation, we're going to teach them as history teachers, right? And the quote also shows how much of a Euro-American bias uh, there is. You know, just that quote just reeks of Euro-American bias because it completely discounts the telling of U.S. history from the perspective of American indigenous groups, non-white immigrants, and of course, African-Americans, descendants of former slaves, right? So there's just so much missed with that that just hits me in the face. Uh, yeah, and... Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, okay. Um, I, I was going to say two things. Um, number one, again, I think, again, Pat, on the nose, totally right. Um, no one has a more has a more valid interest in teaching objectionable history than history teachers. History teachers are not trying to teach you an opinion. They're trying to teach you what happens so you can become an informed citizen. That is Remember, important. I was telling you on the podcast, uh, Chris, how there's no conservative historians. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's hard to learn history and think the right hasn't made. But if I could get on a soapbox for two minutes, I probably yeah, yeah, go brief. for it. I have a political theory that explains, for me at least, a lot about the United States and that we never should have been here. And what I mean by that is we are the superpower that has taken over the planet, but we are not a superpower who's taken over the planet because we are a mature, evolved culture that has everyone's best interests in mind. We're a five-year-old who found his dad's gun. And... <laughs> And what I mean by that is, okay, look at Germany. Yep, Holocaust, bad. Nazi Germany, bad, right? But as a culture, I mean, Germany's been around, you know, the, the, the Germanic tribes fought off fucking Rome. This is an ancient culture. This is the Holy Roman Empire eventually. Like, this is a long culture that was kind of ready to take the reins. Now, imperialism, bad. I'm with you. But, like, let's be real. Regardless of our personal opinions, dominant cultures tend to take over chunks of the planet. Germany and China were just kind of ready. It was their time. It didn't work, and this anomaly happened where Hitler was such a piece of shit that he actually fucked up Germany's destiny, right? Where they should have peacefully taken over Europe, and they have still. Again, Germany just started using banks instead of tanks. They run the EU. Germany absolutely has conquered Europe, and just as before, the only thorn in their side is the U.K., Germany has taken over Europe because it is a dominant culture that's kind of ready to be in a leadership position. And Germany's not trying to, I mean, they are, look at the poor fucking Greeks right now, but Germany as a whole is in that leadership position. China is becoming a trade empire that is building the world. Is China good? No. Is Xi Jinping good? Fuck no. But... China is offering to build growing nations in far more ethical and peaceful and productive methods than we ever have. And it's kind of their turn. And what happened is this anomaly happened where America just accidentally found their dad's guns. We were this backwards, redneck, stupid farming country, and then we accidentally graded nukes. And yeah, we just I think happened We just happened to have all the lumber and steel we ever needed, and so we became this industrial powerhouse in one century, and then we made nukes, and we're like, oh, okay, well, um, dibs on the ocean. 
<laughs> and, and, and that is the problem we're in today is this country, this culture is in its infancy. American culture is just over 200 years old. This culture is a baby. And there's a reason why we're pieces of shit because we're a toddler. Find me a toddler who's not a piece of shit. <laughs> and I just don't, we took over the world when we shouldn't have. And that is the problem. Again, five-year-old with his dad's gun is in charge. And I think that's why we're falling apart. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's really well on point. I've never really in, heard anybody put it that way. I like that a lot. <clears throat> I'll get off my soapbox. <laughs> no worries. <laughs> um, Pat, do you have any final thoughts? I was going to pretty much wrap up the episode from there. I mean, just as an educator, you made the point. You, you've got it that it, we're not teaching critical race theory. But what we are doing is we're teaching American history, you know, honestly. And that's what really threatens conservatives. So, yeah, because once again, it just comes back to fear. They're afraid that their children are going to learn the secrets about their country and they're going to realize America's a pretty fucked up place. Well, yeah. <laughs> it went from holding up signs saying, we don't want mixed race marriages and bathrooms to now they're old and they're saying, please don't tell our kids about the fucked up race shit we did. Yep. Exactly. Excellent, excellent point, Chris. They're the exact same people. Yep. Um, thank you guys so much. I, I learned a lot from you. Like I knew I would, uh, do you have anything that you'd like to plug? Chris, how about you first? Uh, sure. Do you thank you for having me on? Uh, we had you on our podcast, uh, last time it was awesome. Uh, we had a really good, uh, communist, socialist, progressive anarchist kind of, you know, four-way debate on, on policy. It was awesome. Uh, this was fantastic. I, I love being up here with you. So thank you for having me. If anybody wants to check us out, we are the alt left podcast. Uh, you can find us. We have a link tree, um, and find us on Twitter. It's the best way to get our stuff is, um, we are Twitter at the alt left pod. Um, and it's got our link tree. You can find us if you're interested. If you think uh, if my voice and history lessons didn't bore the shit out of you, hop on over and check us out. Um, and we'd love to have you over. All right. Thanks, Chris. Pat, what would you like to plug? Well, again, Jordan, um, always enjoy my time on your podcast. And I'd, I'd say next to me, you're, you're the best interviewer in the game. Um, <laughs> but, you know, really, I, I've enjoyed your podcast since I first came on and have been listening ever since. Um, Thanks, I'm from... Sure, absolutely. Um, for a year and a half now, I've been running Trickle Down Socialism, uh, a podcast with the concept of just you know taking Reaganomics and flipping it on, on its head. We do have a system of socialism in the U.S. It just benefits the super rich uh, and the corporations. And so why can't we get a piece of that? It's kind of our, our tagline there. Um, but Trickle Down Socialism, search us up wherever you get your podcasts, or you can follow us on Twitter um, at trickle down sock soc um but yeah absolutely a blast being here jordan and chris i enjoyed cutting it up with you as well um i've really just had a fun conversation and i will be checking out your podcast going forward awesome yeah i'm gonna check out yours too and yeah this was great 805 uncensored is awesome um i'm definitely gonna check out your trickle down so um <clears throat> sorry your, your trickle down socialism that sounds awesome i haven't heard of that i love it um, and this was great. Thank you for having me. I had a great fucking time being here. Anytime guys and listeners be sure to check out once again, the alt left podcast and the trickle down socialism podcast. They're a couple of really great lefty podcasts and you'll learn a lot from them. Thank you guys so much. Have a great rest of your night. Peace out.